Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11 says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sin. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. You may be seated. This is God's word. This passage that's coming about the coming of the Messiah, it's about God's comfort. Verse 1, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Do you see what this is saying here as we think about Christmas time is that true comfort is something that is spoken by God. There are 11 words in this passage right here that are relating to speaking. Three times we see it God directly saying, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And other times it says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken and that the word of our God will stand forever. And there are other voices in this passage as well, prophets and angels perhaps and people of God speaking, but they're speaking at God's bidding. And so what we should remember when we read this passage, that thing that sticks out to us is that our comfort, our encouragement, our strong consolation in life is spoken by God. And it also must be spoken by us. We who have been comforted by the Messiah that he has come are called upon to speak this good news. Verse 9 says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. You see, the good news of the Messiah's coming that has been told to us, spoken by God is something that we who know it, who have been comforted by it, are to speak as well. As the gospel hymn says, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere that Jesus Christ is born. 
This is something that we tell. This is the good news that we tell. You know your senior pastor, Manuel, is a little bit of a joker because he likes to tell stories about people. And sometimes they're true stories and sometimes they're completely made up. Uh, like the time that he said that when I was in, growing up that I wanted to marry Natalie Portman. Que chisme! <laughs> you know? <laughs> Pero es, es, es muy chistoso, ¿no? It's a, it, his jokes are, are funny, though, right? And I told him I would get him back one day. And I'm going to tell you a story that is true. You know, when he was, uh, he was taking study leave earlier this, uh, in the fall, and he went up to the Sangre de, de Cristo Mountains to uh, pray and to plan, and he went up to this rural mountain pub to eat, and uh, in these places, you know, there's rough people, they got these really big mountain beards, and, and they're scary, and they, they talk rough, and they look rough, and they are rough, and they're talking, and Manuel's sitting there eating his dinner, talking with them about, about things, and... And it gets to the point in the conversation that as a pastor you don't want to have asked in this situation is, what do you do? <laughs> With the rough mountain people. And he says, he says, I am a herald. <laughs> a herald of good news. And they're like, according to him, okay, weird. <laughs> but you see the truth is here, we are all heralds who know this good news. We are called Zion, Jerusalem. We are called to be heralds of this good news. We who know that Christ has come are called on to share this comforting message. Not just pastors. We're all heralds. And we must not forget it. At our deepest level, we must remember that this is a comfort that is spoken to us by God. He is the source of our comfort. He is where we get this consolation from. And the thing that we, we oftentimes know is that Christmas is, is oftentimes a time that is, we, there's a lot of natural consolations and comforts that come at Christmas. I mean, the music is so nostalgic and comforting. The lights, they shine brilliantly in the dark and they give this comforting feeling. And the, the gifts under the tree, they, they get us so excited and they encourage us. And the amount of tamales and ham that I'm going to eat is really exciting and comforting and the amount of time that you get for break that's consoling but most importantly I think we find that Christmas or one of the things that we find so consoling about Christmas is that it is a time that holds out the hope of, of time with family this we see as a great comfort and these things are all so good but if I am a Christmas Grinch it's for this one reason. All of the music, all of the lights, all of the gifts, all of the tamales, and all of the family, they can sometimes distract us from the real source of comfort. That it is not ultimately in these things, but it is a comfort that comes from God who speaks to us the words of comfort to our hurting hearts. See, all of these consolations, they are but wrapping paper that gets ripped up when they fall into the hands of our loss, when they fall into the hands of loneliness, when they fall into the hands of our sin. My father-in-law was 12 years old when on Christmas Day he found out that his, his father was going to soon die from cancer. Christmas isn't very consoling to him in that way. You see, when you go through things, when you go through loss, all of these comforts, 
that Christmas holds out to you, they can just magnify the sense of loss that we feel. And the stuff and the sentiment of Christmas doesn't truly comfort us. And, and these things that we see, the, the, the food and the, the lights and the music and all of this stuff, they can functionally become the very thing that we look to for comfort instead of God. And we find that that is empty. Now rather than be a Grinch and take away all of your presents and all of your lights and all of your food and all of uh, your stuff and take it back to my mountain cave and be angry, let me tell you three words of God's comfort that he speaks to us in this passage. The theologian John Webster says God speaks three words of comfort here. He speaks the words of forgiveness, the comforting words of his presence, and he speaks to us the comforting words of his rule. The first thing that he speaks to us, the words of comfort, are God's comfort of his forgiveness. Verse 2 says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. You see, this is poetic language, highly poetic language that in the Hebrew, I love the way it, it talks about it. In the Hebrew, it says, Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. You see, the Israelites needed to be spoken to their heart. They needed to be encouraged because they were suffering from a broken and burdened heart. They had turned from God. They didn't trust him and they sinned against him and they would soon go into exile. The impending reality is weighed upon them. The burden of their sin. As the hymn we sang says it very well, what's going on with them. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourned in lonely exile here. They would mourn in exile for, they sin, for their sin. So they needed God's word of comfort spoken directly to their heart. And the thing is, as Christians, you and I, when we sin as Christians and we recognize the burden of our sin upon our lives, we are feeling that same way. It is as if we mourn in lonely exile, burdened in our heart by the sin that still we struggle with. And we say, how long are we going to be in this sin and misery? And it is to this situation that God says, speak tenderly to your heart. And the words that he says tenderly to this is this, your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. You have received from the Lord double for all your sin. It's a triple whammy here of God saying to our hearts, your fight with sin is done. Your ugly stain of iniquity, it is blotted out. Your sin has been paid in full. You are forgiven. When it says here that her warfare is over in the footnotes of your Bible, you may notice the word next to warfare can be translated your time of service. You know, it may mean the, the, the time of service is the, one, is the type of service that one does not do of your own volition, but is required of one by a superior. As a rule, it was service in war, but it could also be labor. It came to designate the toilsome, the toilsome labor of the indentured slave. This is what one commentary said. 
your warfare, your toilsome labor as an unpaid slave. Your slave master, the fight against the slave driver of sin is accomplished, is what God is saying here. And that her iniquity is pardoned. It's saying that the shameful spots of sin in your life, they are atoned for. They're pardoned. They're covered. They're blotted out. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sin. It's saying that your sin has been abundantly paid for. It's been abundantly covered. It's a picture of complete forgiveness here that he's talking about. Your sin and idols and the evil one has no power to blackmail you into its service. Because you have no guilt and you have no shame. It cannot blackmail you. You know, the Center of Hope um, came and did a presentation um, a few weeks ago. And they told about how one of the ways that sometimes men, these men, that are, these traffickers keep young boys and girls in human trafficking and sex trafficking is through blackmail. They take exposing videos and they take exposing pictures and the boys or the girls, they, they want to get out of it. But they have the blackmail, they have the pictures, they have the videos, and they want to leave, and then the, 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 the enslavers, they say, oh, you wouldn't want those pictures to get out to your friends, would you? You don't want that video on the internet. No, you got to pay it off, you got to buy those back. And they blackmail them, and they keep them enslaved. And if we knew who those girls and boys were, wouldn't you want to speak tenderly to their heart, saying these things do not define you. You are forgiven and you wish to, I wish we could obliterate all of that blackmail. Then they would be free. And this is how it is with us in our life. Christians, we are aware of the daily sin and the daily shameful acts that we do. It is as if they have been caught on video. And the evil one and sin would hold it over us as blackmail to keep us enslaved by those very sins. And God says tenderly to us right here, he says, your shame has been deleted. Your slavery is over. Your debt has been paid in full. You have nothing to be blackmailed for. You are forgiven. And the question is, as we hear these words that are meant to be speaking of great comfort to our hearts, how can God truly speak these comforting words to us? How can he actually say that? And this is where these words of comfort are looking to the coming of Jesus himself. You know, in, in, in Matthew, a messenger from the Lord appears to Joseph and he says this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, this verse is looking to Jesus who saves his people from their sins. This is how God's comfort comes to us. Jesus, born of a virgin, God in the flesh, sinless man, he would live the 
perfect life so that he could go to the cross and blot out our sins so that these words in verse 2 of Isaiah 40 could be true. Because they also point to Isaiah 53 that says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and by his wounds we are healed. We are made new creatures. That is the good news is that as because Christ has come and because he has died, we are healed in him. We are made new people in the new man, Jesus. And so we are not slaves to sin and those sins have been paid for. See, this is the strong consolation of God about our forgiveness. And closely connected to forgiveness is God's word of comfort that is of his presence. God's comfort, we see, is also his presence. We see this in verses 3 through 5. And and what it's talking about is about the Lord our God. He is coming to us and he's pushing aside all of the barriers that keep us from seeing his undeniable reality. He's pushing aside the barriers. It's like my, my daughter or your kids, when they see the donuts at the back table, they push aside everything to go get the donuts. See, verses 3 through 5 is talking about God's imminent coming presence. And it's in this high poetry. Verses 3 through 5, it reads this. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and high and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. What do wildernesses and deserts and mountains and valleys and rivers and rough places do? They slow us down. And they keep us separate. They keep us apart. Did you know that in the early, in the 1800s, most Americans did not actually believe that Santa and the elves lived on the North Pole? They didn't actually believe that. I know that's surprising to you, but they didn't believe it. Actually, most Americans believed that the North Pole was a temperate climate and that there was a lost race of humans that lived up there. But the problem was there was a ring of ice mountains that was blocking us and keeping us away from them. See, mountains, iced mountains, they keep us apart. They keep us apart. You know, when... uh, Lewis and Clark were crossing the mountains to come to the Pacific coast. They, they were going up the river, the Missouri River, and they, they are climbing up the river. And they think, you know what? When we get over these little hills, it's going to be just this little, you know, uh, canoeing down to the Pacific Ocean. Nobody had ever seen the Rockies before. And they get up to the Rockies and they see these massive snow-covered mountains and they instantly realize, man, we may not ever get home. What do mountains and valleys and rivers do? They slow our progress. If not, they completely stop us from becoming present. Mountains and valleys and deserts keep us apart, but God's comfort is here by saying that there is nothing in all of creation that will slow me down and keep me from you and keep me from you and you from seeing my undeniable reality and my glory. And this is what he's saying in high poetry. It's almost as if he says it like Marvin Gaye. 
Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you, baby. Right? That's what he's saying. Except for he's not talking about a girlfriend. He's talking about his coming glory. His imminent revealed presence. See, God's glory is the simple manifestation of his undeniable reality, his absolute reality, his presence. Remember in Isaiah 6, when God's glory comes into the temple, Isaiah falls flat on the ground because he's in the undeniable presence of God. And God is saying, there's nothing that's going to stop me from coming to be present. And the astounding thing about all of this is that when Isaiah says in the Old Testament, behold, your God is present. The New Testament says, see, he is wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. John 1.14, the word of God became flesh and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And it is grace for us because it's about him coming to us. And it is tr- the coming of Christ is truth because we see that he is undeniable reality. When we deserved total separation, mountain upon mountain upon mountain upon mountain, he came to us. And what's so comforting about God's absolute presence and his reality is that it is permanent. His presence is a permanent reality. You see, our comforts in our life are so very temporary. For we ourselves are temporary. Our families are temporary. Our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents are temporary. Our Christmas vacation is very temporary. And all the good things that we get, they fade See, we recognize that there is a hollowness in all of these things. But verse 8 says, All flesh is grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the, the flower fades. But the word of our God, the very presence of our God in Jesus Christ is forever. See, God's comfort is that he has come to us and he is present. And his reality, his presence is forever. His presence is forever, even though we don't see it with our eyes. And though it appears as though God's glory and his presence is nothing compared to our problems and to the nations and to all the things that are there, sometimes it seems as if his presence is, is absent. Because we see all of the problems. The Israelites, they saw the Babylonians coming. The Israelites saw the Romans coming. We see our sin. We see our problems. But God says, compared to him, all flesh, all of these things are but grass. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Why? Because God reigns as the king of the universe. And this brings us to our last point. That because God has come present, the good news, that comfort is that God rules. 
God's comfort is his rule. Look at me, look with me at verse 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord comes with might, the God who is present. He comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now how on earth is it that this story of a baby born in a stable dependent on parents to feed him, to clothe him, to change him, how is this story that we remember on Christmas the story of the sovereign coming of the Lord in strength? It seems really odd. It doesn't seem to fit. Jerry Packer puts it well. He says, it is here in the Christmas story that that the thing that happened at the first Christmas at the most profound and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty Lord appeared on earth as a helpless human baby unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion in the deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was reality. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. See, they say truth is stranger than fiction and and this truth that the coming of the Lord in might is the coming of one who came as a baby and helpless it's a fantastic truth but it is the truth and this is the very word that God gave to Mary in Luke 1 she says behold you will conceive in your womb And you will call his name Jesus. For he will be great. The understatement. He will be called great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. In this strange story, we find the story of God's rule, of his reign. We find that Christ is the king. And the three wise men, they were wise enough to understand this, for they came to him, and what did they do? They, they came and they brought him gifts befitting a king, and they bowed before him and they worshipped him. And yet the very next thing that happens is this king, this coming king, he runs in exile. He runs to Egypt because King Herod kills all the babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to stop this usurper. And Jesus does, in fact, come as a usurping king. If we remember the beginning of the story in Genesis, we begin to understand that Jesus is the promised offspring of the woman who would crush the offspring of the serpent. Yet Herod is not the offspring of the serpent. And Jesus came with an arm to rule, not to usurp the Babylonians or Herod or the Romans or any other nation, for they're merely pawns. He came as the usurping king. He came 
to defeat the kingdom of darkness, of Satan, sin, and death itself. This is his kingdom coming. This is his rule, Colossians 1. You see, we have to remember that his birth was always meant to lead to the death, to his death on the cross and to his resurrection. And the death and the resurrection of Christ is the decisive blow where we see his arm rules. But it is in this strange truth that we see how God's arm that is raised in triumph here is lowered to us in compassion. He says he will gather his lambs in his arms. In verse 11, he will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with young. You see, the Messiah understood. He understands what it was like to be a young little boy. And the picture of Jesus, he has his arm raised as a victorious king. And he holds us close to his heart. This is comfort for us. Did I say that I didn't mean to be a Grinch? Um, Sometimes I really don't like Christmas Eve services. When I grew up, Christmas Eve was for firecrackers and food in Guatemala, and that's what we did. But sometimes, one time I went to this really horrible Christmas Eve service, and the pastor had all the kids come up, and they all came up, and the pastor was asking the kids, now, have you been a good boy this year? Yes? Okay. What's Santa going to give you for Christmas? A car? Oh, that's good. And then, after that, his whole message, his whole sermon was, Jesus is a little baby. What are you going to give to Jesus for Christmas this year? And if that's the Christmas message, you do good, you try hard, and you might get some shiny things, and there's a little baby Jesus who needs your stuff, if that's the Christmas message, then I am a big-time Grinch, and I am Ebenezer Scrooge. Because that is not what the Christmas message is about. It's not that he needs our gifts, or that he needs us to be good. You see, he is the king, and he does command us to give everything And he commands us to give everything in our very lives to each other. And in fact, the good news, the gospel truth is that the gifts of the three wise men was just the beginning. And the truth is that he has already come. He has been given the gifts of the nations. He has been given the spoils in conquering the kingdom of darkness. And now he sits as the king with his arm ruling. And he he is the one who distributes gifts to us. Behold, his reward is with him. Verse 10. You see, he's the man who's giving the gifts at Christmas. And they are the spiritual gifts that are unperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And the greatest gift that this man, this Christ, gives to us is that he has given us the greatest gift that he holds us close to his heart. This is our strong consolation. And this is why we rejoice and we go and we tell it on the mountains, over the hills and everywhere that Jesus Christ is born.